Hello, and welcome to the second episode of the Policy Agendas podcast. I'm EJ Fagan, the project manager of the Policy Agendas project. Uh, today, I am joined by two wonderful co-hosts. Uh, the first is Christine Bird Esquire. I don't go by Esquire because my mother would be embarrassed, but Christine uh, Bird is fine. Christine Bird will soon be Dr. Christine Bird Esquire, uh, which, which is a wonderful dual title. And uh, Brooke Shannon. Hello, no Esquire. <laughs> no Esquire. Yeah. So uh, so we just recorded a great episode. So I'm going to ask Christine, what was on the agenda or what is on the agenda for this episode? So today we talked to Suzanne Mettler, the author of The Government Citizen Disconnect is her newest book. It just came out in 2018. And it's a follow up to a previous book called The Submerged State that I think she published in 2009. In this book, she goes into why citizens have particular views about social policies that they interact with and how that relates to their participation in government. And so we had a great conversation with her coming up. It was a great experience. And Brooke? Yeah, some of the takeaways I found from Mettler were just fascinating how this book builds on the submerged state. So when it came out in 2011, it really focused on like the earned income tax credit, the Affordable Care Act, and things like these tax policies that are sort of like muddled by the government so much so that people don't really know what they are and how they they fit into everyday people's lives. And discussing with Dr. Mettler about how these policies translate into like who gets elected, how people view their own participation and efficacy in government, how the government works for them, I think is especially prescient right now, given the midterms that we just passed and given the state of American politics. But yeah, I think there were a lot of takeaways in terms of policy prescriptions, what's possible in government and what's possible in participation. It was a fantastic interview. Yeah, I, I really am excited for it. And that will come. Let me just have a few kind of uh, little clerical things before we do that. This is a new podcast. This is You're listening right now to the second episode. First episode as we're recording, this is not yet out, so we're not too sure how many of you are listening. But if you are listening, I just want to ask you to do a couple of things. Number one, if you can give us a rating in iTunes, uh, that helps it so that when people search for Policy Agenda in iTunes, they don't have Laura Ingram's show come up first, which is currently <laughs> what comes up first. So we'd love for that not to happen. Yikes. Don't accidentally click on that one, please. The second thing uh, we'd like you to do is to share it with your colleagues, with your friends, with your students, people that you know. We're going to be doing quite a few of these podcasts. I think we have about four in the pipeline right now. We're recording our next one uh, in November, and uh, we're excited to share this with the world. We'd love your feedback. Our email is policyagendas, plural, at gmail.com. And on Twitter, we are at policyagendas. Uh, and we'd love to know, you know, what work should we cover? What kind of questions should we ask? Are we doing something wrong? Is my voice annoying? All of those things we'd love to know. And are looking forward to doing this podcast with you. So with that, here is Professor Suzanne Mettler. We are now joined by Professor Suzanne Mettler. She's the Clinton Rossiter Professor of American Institutions in the Government Department at Cornell University and the author of The Government Citizen Disconnect. Suzanne, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be chatting with you. Yeah, we, we, uh, we're really excited to, to talk about this book. Um, this book is in many ways a follow-up to the submerged state, in many ways a pretty large extension of the submerged state, going into some areas that uh, that, that book did not. We'd like to start just by asking you, can you summarize this book for uh, our audience? Yes, certainly. So what I look at in this book is, well, I, I did kind of a big overview of what does the American welfare state look like these days in terms of who's covered by policies, how many policies does the average person experience, and how does it all add up? 
And what I came to is a paradox, uh, and I call that the government-citizen disconnect. And what I mean by that is that there is a growing gulf between the role that government actually plays in Americans' lives and their overall assessment and response to it. So what I found is that the average person has used several social policies from the federal government uh, across the course of their lives. But um, despite that, and you know, this, is, this has been growing over time and it's more common than it was in the past to, to a very large extent, and it cuts across all sorts of boundaries by income group and partisanship and age group, et cetera, and geographically cuts across um, all areas of the United States. And yet people have very poor assessments of government um, on all sorts of indicators that survey researchers have tracked over time, like trust in government and what we call in political science, political efficacy, external efficacy, people's view about whether government is responsive to people like them, uh, their view about whether public officials care about people like them, et cetera. On all of these measures in the middle of the 20th century, Americans had pretty positive views of government, and it's been declining over time. It declined a lot in the late 1960s, early 1970s, around Vietnam and Watergate, et cetera. But what's so paradoxical now is that in recent decades, Americans have come to rely upon government more than ever, and yet still have these very low and increasingly low assessments of government. Okay, so your previous work, The Submerged State, addressed some of these issues, but in in a much more narrow fashion. So could you explain the differences between the two books? Yes. So in The Submerged State, I'd been working on this larger project already. And then during when I was trying to understand what was happening with the Obama administration, I ended up writing that short book, The Submerged State. And in it, I developed this concept of policies that are submerged by their design that makes it difficult for for people to realize that government is helping them with social benefits. In most cases, these policies that I call submerged are channeled through the tax code, their tax expenditures, and some of them have uh, other designs such as I called student loans submerged up through their 2010 reform because they were government subsidies channeled through banks, private banks. And then there are policies like employer-provided health and retirement benefits that combine private organizations actually channeling policies, but they're subsidized by government through the tax code. So I really explored that concept in that book. And here I build on it in the government citizen disconnect because I'm really puzzled by why we have this disconnect. And I thought that it would come down to policy design and which policy, whether people had experienced policies that were mostly submerged or had more visible designs. And I find that, you know, that is the case. People who've used mostly submerged policies have no bearing that I can tell on their attitudes about government. And so their attitudes about government are driven by other things. But even people who've used lots of visible policies, what I found in this book and and really surprised me is that even those experiences don't seem to affect their attitudes about government very much. So in this book, 
I lay out broadly what people's experiences of government add up to, the numbers of policies and types of policies they've used. And then I try to delve into that question of why is there this disconnect? And I also look at the relationship between people's use of different policies and their participation in politics. All right. And, and now that um, we're going to segue right to talking a little bit about participation, you know, given that we've, we've had a recent election, uh, you know, some interesting, I think, things to say that, or tie-ins to this book. I think Christine is, is going to take us away there. Yes. This book, The Government Citizen Disconnect, actually draws a connection between the disconnect and the not understanding the submerged state and voting behavior. So you do a survey that you draw on data from for this book, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you made that connection. Yeah, that's right. Now, when I probe the relationship to political participation in this book, I'm not making causal arguments. I didn't have the data that would allow me to do that. And there are various scholars now who are are finding ways to do that, exploring, you know, one policy at a time. But here I'm trying to kind of look at how people's aggregated experiences over time matter. And so I'm looking at relationships. And what I find is that there is a participatory tilt when it comes to voting and all kinds of other political participation as well. And that is that the people who participate the most in politics are people who've used plenty of social policies, but policies with these submerged designs. And these tend to be people who are not thinking much at all about how government has helped them personally. And they also tend to be less supportive of expanding social policies. By contrast, people who've used lots of visible policies are the most likely to be aware of government's role in their own lives, at least along a couple of dimensions. And they also, having used more of these policies, is a determinant of being more supportive of more generous social policies generally and expanding expanding healthcare provision and so on. But those people with those attitudes are much less likely to participate in politics. Um, They're less likely to vote. They're less likely to do all kinds of other things that we track in surveys. So there's this participatory tilt and, you know, the voices that elected officials hear from and the, the voices that actually choose those elected officials are a biased group in that respect. So speaking about healthcare and social policy in particular, we just had an election Um, And one of the surprising, I think, takeaways from the 2018 midterms was the amount of states that, in fact, voted to expand Medicaid. And there were some surprises in the states that did it based on the government's ideological tilt and the typical view that we have of the citizens in those states. Can you speak on that a little bit? Was that a surprise for you that Medicaid would be sort of embraced in these or at least the expansions would occur in these types of states? I'm delighted to speak about this. And this draws, my answer here is going to draw on a combination of this book that I've just written and also my ongoing work with Larry Jacobs about the Affordable Care Act. We've been doing a panel study since 2010 and we're looking at policy feedback effects of it. And the results of the election could be very well predicted by um, the insights from these two projects combined. So in the book that I've just written, The Government Citizen Disconnect, I'm not looking at policy feedback effects in the way people usually do when they're looking at 
a policy, for example, the way Andrea Campbell did in her work on Social Security and Medicare. And there she's looking at whether people become more active in politics with an eye toward expanding and preserving and protecting that particular policy that benefits them. And, you know, those kinds of feedback effects do occur with various different policies. And we're seeing more research about that all the time. What I was doing in this book was looking at whether people extrapolate further from their policy experiences toward government generally and whether it affects their attitudes about government generally. And I found that that doesn't happen very much. Um, People don't connect the dots. And what we saw in this election really reflects this kind of disjuncture where we saw that in various red states where people elected Republicans to send them back to the Senate, and these are people who have said for years that they want to repeal the Affordable Care Act, they're sending those folks back to office. And yet at the same time, they were voting to uh, for their own states to adopt expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. So it's a disjuncture. And it's exactly what these two projects point to. And the way I explain this is that it's like a paradox that um, political scientists Free and Cantrell discovered way back in the 1960s, that Americans are, uh, if you look at public opinion, Americans are at one and the same time philosophically conservative and in utilitarian terms, they act like liberals. So if people are asked broad questions about the size of government and the extent of taxes, they will sound like conservatives. They want small government, low taxes, etc. So philosophically speaking, on these abstract principles, they sound conservative. And yet, if people are asked about their support for all sorts of specific policies and whether we should have more funding for them or less, they sound like liberals. So in a utilitarian sense, they'll say, yes, let's have, as it turns out, expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, or let's spend more money on Social Security or unemployment insurance or food stamps, et cetera. So I think that's what we're seeing in these election results. And it's, it's quite fascinating. I mean, the Affordable Care Act, despite the fact that Republicans had rallied against it for years, seems to be on more firm footing today uh, because of this election. An important group of people missing, I think, from from this book are elites. And I think that kind of comes up here as part of this discussion. The puzzle that you point out in this book is that you have a lot of people who receive government aid who don't like the federal government and don't seem to think that they benefit from that aid. But the reverse paradox, I think, is also interesting that you have a lot of people who give aid who are more supportive, or at least in the aggregate level, are more supportive. So I come from New Jersey. In New Jersey, our politicians always love to talk about how we're a donor state and we don't get enough back from the federal government. But people in my district two weeks ago overwhelmingly supported candidates who would increase the social spending to places like Kentucky and Mississippi and places that aren't New Jersey. Does the weird cleavage of the political parties kind of get in the way of uh, citizen attitudes toward policy? Uh, you know, is, is the problem that the people who represent you know, the, the poorest areas of the country tend to be Republicans and oppose social policy and the reverse of Democrats. Does that create an issue here? Well, I did find the this very interesting geographic divide. So 
if you look, I, I have these maps in the book where I show the percentage of the average person's income that comes from federal social transfers. And with the particular data I use for the maps, it does not even include these policies that I'm calling the submerged state. It's 40 different direct social transfer policies. And uh, what it shows, uh, it's very interesting. If we go back to 1969, the average American received 7% of their of their income from the federal government. And as of 2014, it's up to 17%. Then if you look at it by state, it's grown in every state all over the country. But the states in which it tends to be highest, several of them are of very conservative states that send not only Republicans to Congress, but Republicans who are these days associated with the Freedom Caucus, really want to scale back policies. And so, yeah, there, there certainly is that kind of partisan divide. On net, I don't find a clear partisan relationship between those things at, at the state level nationwide. And um, partisanship, while it's a factor in explaining this, it did not end up being the overriding factor that explains it. I think that's super interesting about the state breakdown. And so a question that came up while reading this book about policy prescriptions in particular, like access to higher education, et cetera, really um, have the action has taken place at the state and local level. So with these policies that are sort of indicative of marble cake federalism, where the states and localities as well as the federal government really share a lot of the, the roles and responsibilities. Where do the states come in, in the government citizen disconnect and also in the submerged state? Well, uh, I was focused on policies that have funding from the federal government, although these policies vary in the extent to which states have some discretion and authority themselves um, over eligibility, over funding, et cetera. I did not delve into that here. You know, that's certainly an interest of mine. It was what my, my first book, Dividing Citizens, looks into. But um, I guess for that, you know, I would really point you toward the wonderful book that came out this past year by my colleague, Jamila Michener, focusing on Medicaid and, and variation mm -hmm. uh, from state to state. Someone could certainly delve in further and look at, at those kinds of relationships, but it, it's not something I did here. Mm -hmm. Does marble cake federalism get in the way of responsiveness uh, as opposed to you know, federalism where um, duties are clearly delineated? But when you have some of these areas like Medicaid that are kind of – the role is kind of murky. Do people just not really know who to get mad at or – Oh, that's a good question. So um, this is really the question of accountability. So if people are receiving benefits is the point that perhaps they don't know which level of government um, the benefits flow from. You know, I'm I'm not sure about that. And it it is true that some policies, I mean, for example, Medicaid now actually has many different names in different states. And so that could cloud things somewhat, but I don't think that really explains away the puzzle that I'm finding because, you know, if anything, the policies, the people who benefit from these policies that tend to leave more authority to the states tend to be lower income people in means tested policies. And they're the people who are most aware that government has done something for them. Whereas um, the policies that benefit people who are more well off are more likely to be nationalized policies. So I don't think that explains it. 
We've really enjoyed hearing you talk about the book, but I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your choices when it came to what data to use. And most importantly, what's on the cutting room floor when it came to working on this project? Oh, <laughs> that's a good question because I worked on the project for years and years. So I think uh, there was a lot on the cutting room floor that I ended up putting aside. And um, there's a lot more in these data that I've used and I've made them available on my website so that other scholars can can do more with them. So um, I used three data sets here. I used a survey that I had conducted in 2008 and then I began to probe a little bit for the submerged state book and did more with it here. And I wish the data was more up to date, but it's still the only existing data set we have that asks all of these questions about people's use of 21 different federal social policies, if they've ever used them, all sorts of follow-up questions about their experiences, and then all of these attitudinal questions that, you know, and participatory questions that we have in the American National Election Study, which in, you know, usually you have surveys that ask either one type of question or the other, but not these two combined. So there's a lot more to be done there. And one of the things on the cutting room floor is that anytime a person said yes, that they had used a particular policy, there were several follow-up questions And I really only began to use those data to probe what people's experiences were like. So there's much more to be done there. There were also more um, attitudinal questions that I didn't even begin to get into um, in this book that I think um, other scholars can find to be useful. The second data set is one that I put together myself over many years with the help of several graduate students working with me. And this is historical data that looks over time at how many Americans have used each of these social policies and what the value of them is in real terms by individual or household. And so all of that is available at my website and a lot more could be done with that. And then the third data set that I used comes from the Bureau of Economic Analysis, which is in the Commerce Department. And this is wonderful data. And that's uh, that allowed me to look to create the maps where I'm looking at the state level at average usage. And actually, I drilled down to the county level using those data. And so I used those only in you know a few ways. There's a lot more that I think political scientists should do with those data. All right, so we're going to start wrapping up here. We'd like to ask you, as we're, we're going to begin asking all of our guests, you're the first person to get this question, for uh, a recommendation in a recent work of political science that you read that you think more people should read. Oh, wow. Um, what a great question. <laughs> um, so let's see. There are so many, so many things that I would like to mention. <laughs> and as soon as we end this call, I'm going to think of, you know, 10 others that I wish I'd I'd recommended. But for me right now, a book that's very important is How Democracies Die by Steve Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. So here they are, comparativists who are looking at the state of American politics today and raising really valuable questions for us. I think 
that for scholars of American politics, we've had a little harder time knowing how to come at these questions. And I think that there are great concepts that are developed by comparativists who study the rise and fall of democracies around the world. So I really recommend that book as very useful for, for getting us thinking in that direction. Do you think that Americanists should study European populism more than we do? Well, um, I think that that's useful. But, you know, frankly, I'm learning a lot from colleagues who study the rise and fall of democracy in countries around the world, not just in Europe, but Latin America, Southeast Asia, and so on. So I think we need to broaden our lens in order to, to understand what we're going through. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. The book is The Government Citizen Disconnect. We'll have a link to it in the description below this podcast. And uh, we look forward to reading the next one. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed talking with you.